Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landaway. In this episode of the Planetary Regeneration Podcast, I'm joined by Jonathan Ledgerd, who is really an amazing gentleman, um, former war correspondent for The Economist, um, fellow at ETH Zurich, um, now specializing in artificial intelligence and doing some amazing work on interspecies money and a new project called Dugong Dao, which is the first pilot to create an example of bringing economic agency to endangered species, specifically the dugong of the coast of East Africa. And uh, Jonathan and I had an amazing podcast uh, recording uh, perhaps a year ago, which uh, had some technical difficulties, so we never got it out to you all. But I hope you enjoy this installment of the Planetary Regeneration podcast in which Jonathan and I uh, go through many very interesting topics. It's really always a pleasure to talk with Jonathan. I hope to have him back on again. And another note, Jonathan is um, responsible for connecting me with uh, Kim Stanley Robinson. So those of you who got to listen to Stan, Stan and I chat in uh, a podcast episode have Jonathan to thank. So um, yeah, very excited about Jonathan's uh, thought leadership on interspecies money and grateful that I got to dive into that topic with him. Welcome, Jonathan Ledger, to your second appearance on the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. Your first appearance was unfortunately um, digital goblins stole the files or something. So we had uh, <laughs> so we had a, a beautiful conversation that never saw the light of day. Thanks so much for hopping on again, and I'm so excited to chat with you again about interspecies money, multiple other layers. I'm just I'm super excited to dive in with you. So welcome, Jonathan. Thanks, Greg. I'm a little bit intimidated. It's that, that kind of feeling that, you know, when you've written a great piece of writing and left it on the train and you recall that that was the, the greatest thing you've ever written. Our last conversation was excellent and I'm a bit worried that I will not live up to it, but, but we'll try, you know. I think together we'll have fun and, and something beautiful will emerge out of it. Before we hit the record button, you and I were, were just catching up a little bit. At least one topic that I really want to dig into, you, you were mentioning sort of in passing, the way that you're conceptualizing wanting to focus on individual organisms instead of sort of collective ecosystems as the foundation for the approach to this sort of reinvention of of money, the interspecies money that you've been working on. So just putting a sort of like a tack, you know, up on a cork board, a virtual cork board here for you, myself and our listeners to know that's a, I think, a really interesting topic of conversation that I'd like to, to dig into together. I'd also love to talk with you about the Dugong Dao and the, the pilot that you and your colleagues are working on for sort of like a, a proof of concept around, yeah, interspecies money. And that's that's a project that um, Regen Network granted and been providing a little bit of support to. So we want to make sure to dig into that and understand what's happening and what the latest is and what the vision is. And um, I'm also really, honestly, I'm, I'm sort of interested in a 
in a completely orthogonal subject, but I think it's probably up for a lot of people right now. We're a few days or a week into the invasion with Ukraine, and you have had such an interesting background as a war correspondent. So I was also personally and, and maybe selfishly, but also in service to people who probably are thinking, how does war, whether it was unexpected or expected, <laughs> probably different people expected different things. What's that like and in your experience? And also, how is that going to influence these larger aims, these civilizational imperatives, these quests to reinvent our economy and our society in a regenerative way? How does war affect and impede our work together? So those are the big topics that I'm hoping to dig in with you about, Jonathan. Um, how does that sound? And do you have anything you'd like to add to our conversation? Hey, um... I think with those three uh, tracks, embodiment, interspecies DAOs, and then my previous life, you know, quite separate life as a war correspondent, I think, um, weirdly, I think you're right. I mean, maybe we should start with that one first, maybe. I'm not sure. But, um, I mean, there is an obvious point in the next... You know, for listeners, just by way of context, I had a slightly strange career. My first half of my career was as a foreign and war correspondent for The Economist newspaper in London. Uh, and in that job, I was a terrorism correspondent and I covered many wars, too many, really. And then I became an Africa correspondent for The Economist. I, I've previously been the Eastern Central Europe correspondent, so I do know Ukraine uh, quite well. I kind of, at some point, understood that these levels of instability are, are just going to be pervasive through the 2020s and 2030s, that there will be natural resource competition, uh, climate changes uh, coming down the pipe in very poor communities where young people have, you know, very little chance of getting a job. So this kind of perverse near future where network effects and the digital governance structures that we will talk about later um, can be laid down, but they are going to be laid down in a more fractious uh, world. But in a way, that only supports the argument for these robust layers of digital governance and decentralized liquidity and, and so on, which is not in any way to say that these things are going to solve um, these struggles that we just have to get through as a species as the 19th century humans compete with uh, 21st century humans. Yeah, well, so there's a couple of places that I want to dig in there. I'd love for you to, that's a really interesting turn of phrase, this concept of 19th century humans competing with 21st century humans. Do you want to just go a little deeper there? And then I want to ask you a little bit about take on, on Ukraine specifically, and then maybe we can expand into just more this pattern level observation that you're making around how there's going to be some turbulence and a period of conflict that we're going to need to move through as a species. What do you mean by this 19th century humans competing against 21st century humans? A 19th century human is... Uh obviously embodied by Vladimir Putin, even though, strictly speaking, he's the ultimate 20th century human as a former KGB officer who never really recovered from his KGB 
career. But you know, nineteenth century is really thinking in in very material world uh, terms, in terms of land, in terms of agricultural resources, in terms of uh, you know the mid nineteenth century. You know, with the national romantic movement, you have this very defined idea of what the state should be with its museums, uh, its national universities, professionalization of the uh, army and the navy, you know, national infrastructure in terms of a central bank, in terms of national railways. You know, it's a really heavy, you know, paperweight kind of <laughs> nation state, which has some qualities to it, right? So the nation states, particularly if it comes with its own language, its own history, it has a coherence which the digital realm cannot compete with. And of course, as we know here in Africa, you know, because I'm speaking to you from Kenya, Nairobi, and if you go around many African countries like Congo, Ethiopia, Somalia, uh, these are countries which have never recovered in any way whatsoever from the dumping of the Kalashnikov rifle in the Cold War, you know. So these AK-47s were dumped in their tens of thousands into this region by, by the Soviets, by Putin's, you know, KGB elders. And it doesn't matter what, you know, mobile phone systems they put down and so on and so forth. You've just got young men running around with cheap machine guns and bullets, and that becomes a kind of governance reality. So that's like... The, the most primal kind of 19th century. And then on the other side, the 21st century is basically you and everything up to SpaceX. <laughs> it's, it's kind of efficient resource allocation, giving voice to the people who haven't had such a strong voice before. Justice issues, even the justice issues, which we talk about now where you cross the species divide. But as Ukraine particularly, I think it's a... Uh, just one of those wake-up calls that we're going to have in democratic countries. Uh, but we, unfortunately, I think we've a wee bit decadent in, in the last decade where we've really been focusing on marginal, I don't want to say unimportant issues, but I would say like not priority issues. Like priority issues, you know, criminal justice, hunger, primary education, paying jobs, ecology, and national security and defense. (laughs) And you you have a a generation, I'm sure some of your listeners will not agree with me on this, but you probably have a generation of of people who kind of wish last part away, you know, they they think that belongs to the Trumpist, you know, right, and and it's jingoistic. And of course, America messed up terribly in in Iraq and, and fails miserably in Afghanistan as well. So, there is a lot to unpack there. But the reality is, if we don't stand up to Putin now, in different ways, stand up to him, he's never going to stop. And not only him, but, you know, China and other regimes. This is a really seminal, a seminal moment in 21st century history, right, you know, unfolding. And, and of course, I think you... Right, and many of your listeners will share this view that even me as a former war correspondent, is, I was on the phone to friends in Ukraine five days ago, six days ago, and they were saying, oh, it's never going to happen. No, no, it's all hype, it's not going to happen. <laughs> then it happens and the whole world changes. And now 
once Russia has put its nuclear command on high alert, that means its submarines are heading close to American shores and um, failing their warheads. I'm not saying they're going to, you know, fire any warheads, but, you know, it's precarious. It's very fragile. Yeah, well, I mean, if if, uh, if it comes to that, I guess it's sort of all bets are off. I, just all we can do, I guess, if, if you're a, a believer in, in something bigger, whatever that might be, is just pray, send good vibes, whatever it is that maybe we do in the, the trans-rational realm to re- relieve some of that um, pressure. But if it comes to nuclear war, I guess all we can do is hope that it doesn't. I kind of want to, there's been this, I think a part of the contact here that I think is worth unpacking before we move in to the solution part of this conversation. So I think this is a rich, I think there's some dark, complex, really important context and soil to uncover here together. One of the, I just would so love to get your take on this. Recently, I was chatting with um, Daniel Schmachtenberger. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work. He's a really interesting thinker. He and I were just chatting about the role, the origin and role, the neoliberal kind of global order in creating peace. The design the original sort of design and architecture post-World War II of interconnected global economy in which the cost of war is so high because of long global supply chain. I think neoliberalism kind of gets beat up, including by yours truly, (laughs) for its environmental externalities, its social externalities, maybe a lot of the ways that it completely falls short as an appropriate pattern level for social organization in the 21st century. But in some ways, it has created an enormously, like a much stable global system than this sort of like competing nation state model that you were referring to in the 19th century, which precipitated First World War One and then World War Two, And the, the human cost of that was sort of beyond imagining. And curious, just to hear you riff a little bit about the cracks that are appearing in the neoliberal order in sense-making and meaning-making information, disinformation, social media, democracy, economies, climate change. I mean, it seems like it's just crumbling around us. But at the same time, we're also seeing that same order, world interconnected world economic system kick into gear and respond against Putin's aggression in in Ukraine. And the the ruble is falling through the floor. And there's sort of economic consequences. Those are a feature and not a bug, right? That's part of the system that was designed by the global community to try to disincentivize war. So I'd just love to hear you riff on all of that. That's just kind of me setting some context. But I'm curious to hear your thinking about, is this What's the role of, of a global economic order in the midst of this in this moment, but also maybe if you want to start heading towards interspecies money and, and what this starts to transform into, that I think be an interesting uh, doorway. Yeah, I mean, I think we'll end with that. I think there is, there is a path in this conversation which does lead us naturally in that direction in quite a, quite a muscular, heavy lift way. But let me unpack it a little bit. So I think the... On the positive side of ledger, you can see, uh, as you pointed out, globalization uh, has brought great efficiency, huge increase in wealth, incredible advances in both life expectancy and life quality over a longer arc of time. 
we do seem to make rational decisions. It may not look like it in the short term, but in the long term, we are making a lot of really impressive decisions. You know, for example, you know, when I was a kid in Western Europe, you know, we suffer from acid rain, you know. It was, uh, that was when I was like 13, 14, 15 years old. You know, we were worried about nuclear holocaust and we were worried that all the forests in Europe were dying. And most of the main rivers in Europe, the Rhine, Hems, the Rhone, uh, they were all pretty much biologically dead. And the European Union, you know, emerged out of the EEC, the European Economic Community, which preceded it. You know, it's some bureaucratic questions, it's got some cronyism, but essentially it delivered incredible amounts of common public good. Uh, those rivers that I spoke of now, you know, they have migrating salmon coming all the way up into Switzerland from the North Sea, you know? Wow, <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Uh, and then in the Elbe, or as the Czechs call it, the Lave, which runs from Hamburg down into the Czech Republic through what was Eastern Germany, even you find salmon uh, making it all the way to the Czech Republic, which is miles inland. The river is clean, you can swim in it, you know. And all of the forests along it, which were, you know, you, you, can, you can just look at the imagery from 1986, 1987, these forests were all dead, uh, and now they're perfectly healthy. I mean, obviously there's problems with beetles and various tree diseases, but essentially, you know, things have moved in a really positive direction. And then if we were to extend the argument towards rights of people, we can just take uh, what would be in it. Okay, just take the example of being a young person who has Down syndrome, you know, in Europe or in the United States in 2022, as opposed to 1962. (laughs) You can see that rights for disabled people, you know, when they have physical disabilities or mental disabilities, you know, they're included in society and we can extrapolate that out. Obviously, we could talk all night. It's evening here in Kenya. We could talk all, you know, for the next three hours about things which are going wrong. But I think uh, where we have successful cooperation and stable legal systems, you do see a lot of progress. And even in the United States, where at the federal level, it's looking pretty cannibalized and frightening, to be honest, uh, which will bring me on to my second point of cyber cyber sanity or cyber insanity. Um, but on the metropolitan level, if you look at, you know, how, I don't know, say the city of Dallas is administered, and, you know, you say, like, there's been a lot of progress, you know, and they're getting climate-friendly policies, they're getting um, to have more public transport, not less, you know. So I think all of those things are positive. I think what Putin's Russia has done, and to a lesser extent, North Korea, Iran, and China, to engage in cyber warfare and run these simple bot systems, you know, which I think I'm right in saying some of the very first bot systems were run, I'm Scottish, and they were run by the Russian intelligence agency for the Scottish independence referendum. It obviously suited Russia's interests very much. Britain as a nuclear power, you know, was, was to break up. British uh, nuclear submarines are based in Scotland and the Scottish Nationalist Party is anti-nuclear party. So you could see the way those bots were introduced and injected into that system. And then they were injected into Canada, you know, for the Quebecois separatist movement. And then, of course, 
uh, they actually scored, you know, a direct hit on uh, the uh, Brexit vote. And then, of course, they assisted, I don't say they were the only reason that Trump was elected, but I think it's unlikely he would have been elected without the assistance of these bots. Um, when we have this kind of informational world where people uh, have bespoke digital identities, you know, by default of their smartphones, it's very easy to game that system. But I think it will get harder to do that. I think people, I think there were some easy wins in the beginning. But I think the Ukraine situation is is a sober reminder. Not everything lives in the QAnon verse. You know, there is a real material world out there. And so I'm a little bit optimistic on that. I, I still worry about young people not being able to hold long attention spans and what that does. But I feel like that, you know, that's another riff. Uh, we, we just don't have time to go down. But but then we come to the the really big, meaty part of your question, which is, okay, things which are really going wrong in the material world. Not enough jobs, deep inequity in our societies. So globalization has provided this efficiencies, but they, it's completely failed to deal with the question of equity. Well, and it may not even have been, I mean, I'm not sure to what to what degree do you think that the question of equity was considered important and when as the system has been evolving? You know, because I know some, I know it's heterogeneous, like different people have always had different, I guess, beliefs and philosophies. And it's a complex, the, the system that we we have right now, it's not like there was some shadowy cabal that just implemented it that was homogenous, like that people all thought the same. This evolved through a pretty complex process of people who had different beliefs and approaches kind of compromising and through a complex political process, right? At least that's how I think it probably happened. You probably think something similar. I'm curious, to what degree do you think equity was an important consideration and for who as the system that we're currently, you know, utilizing globally was evolved? This again is like a huge question, but, but I think when you look at Adam Smith, my countryman, he really did have a very deep sense of equity and came from Calvinist Scotland, um, where it was expected that you do share your wealth with the poor, you know. Then, of course, 30 years later, when you have the advent of the railways, and once the steam engine meets the coal industry, then you're on this incredibly Vatslav Smil-like sense of, you know, energy, incredible intensity of energy, which that then allows this enormous acceleration in scale. And I think acceleration is the key thing. And I think that's where everything kind of comes uncoupled. And then, of course, you get the, the rail barons in the States and so on. But I always remember, like, Thomas Jefferson sent Lewis and Clark out to, you know, find the headwaters of uh, Mississippi and Missouri. And then, of course, they were the first... Americans, there have been some Canadians who have gone across the Canadian bit of North America, but they were the first of U.S. citizens to to explore across the Rocky Mountains and make it out to the Pacific Ocean. But what was really interesting was when Lewis and Clark brought Jefferson back 
their map and their surveys, Jefferson thought it would take 10 to 20 generations to fill in that space. <laughs> you know, this is the beginning of the 19th century. He, and he was an incredibly smart engineering mind, but he just didn't calculate in the, the advent of coal and steam power. Of course, you moved to electricity, and then now we're in the digital world. I think when you had that acceleration, that, that inequity just... And you see it in the VC models, right? Even today, right? So if you go to venture capitalists, they'll tell you very brazenly that they're looking for the 100x, which is going to make up for all the other failures. You know, that's just not... <laughs> We don't have to be Thomas Piketty, a great economist, to realize that that, that system is fundamentally unstable and, and might actually be ethically unsound as well. But there is another element to it, which, is, which might be interesting for you at Regen. If you look about the areas where most wealth was generated and most in, inequity was generated, it is around the areas of natural resources. This is about coal, it's about oil, it's about gas, it's about gold, uh, it's about rare earth metals. It's about things that come from the natural world, which someone, 19th century man, makes a claim on, processes and controls those supply chains. You know, certainly most of our post-war post-Second World War conflicts, you know, have been a competition for these uh, natural resources. And I think there's something interesting in that, which brings me on to the final point, which is obviously where does my kind of security, political, economic, macroeconomic thinking meet with ecology? And it really is in the clear abandonment of poorer communities on the planet by richer communities on the planet. You know, I spent December in South Sudan in an area called the Sud. Sud is these huge wetlands about the size of uh, the Netherlands, which are are where the the White Nile breaks apart into many channels. There, the the people are among the poorest people on the planet, and it has some of the richest biodiversity on the planet. And what has happened in the last three years is that as climate change has increased the surface temperature of the Indian Ocean, it dumped more into uh, the, the rainfall cycle of East Africa, which means that the Nile has, for the last three years, broken its banks. And now, Craig, you've got one million people there. Every village in this area the size of the Netherlands, is every village is underwater. The people have lost their crops, animals. They have no place to go. And the World Food Programme, which is the UN agency which is responsible for dealing with extreme famine, only has enough money in its budget to give these people 15 days of food a month. In other words, every other day they go hungry. Parents give their children their food, so parents are starving. You know, This is a, not a story... Uh, I mean, I'm sure if you search online, you can find one or two stories in the New York Times or the Washington Post. But it's not a story which has landed in the news cycle. These kind of stories, they cannot land in news cycles because they're incremental and they kind of look the same. You know, <laughs> it's like people, right. they've got their home. 
really displaced person. But these are climate change refugees existing right now, and nobody cares about them. No one is out on the streets. Like American college students will go on, I'm going to get controversial now, but I feel a little bit strongly about this, but they would actually want the president of their university to be fired because he or she said something about the use of you know, gender-based toilets or something. But they're not willing to engage with these planetary issues, right? And we're just right at the beginning of this climate change cycle, you know? <laughs> planetary issues that, that they have some amount of responsibility for as members of a society that, that in order to become economically advanced and in order to maintain the learning academic infrastructure that they're enjoying, you know, has historically emitted a huge amount of, of uh, carbon dioxide as an externality, Absolutely. as just an externality of the economy that built the institution that they're sort of enjoying the privilege of attending. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's um, there is. And at the same time, I think probably those same college students, many of them probably are actually to give them the benefit of the doubt They they if they had access to that information, they would probably care. And if they and certainly that demographic that we're speaking, it does, I think, care deeply about climate change, the solutions that maybe are being offered to them and the approach, you know, sort of the political economy that built around their activism maybe isn't bringing them the deeper systemic solutions that you and I might think are important. I do I mean, think right, that I, they would care. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to like kick that young generation, and you know, especially as even though, as you say, they're beneficiaries of. If you go to Oberlin College, somebody built Oberlin College. <laughs> they built it in such a way that it's a pretty nice college. I think my point is more broad that there is a choice between us really engaging with the planetary. I mean, the, the heft of climate change and biodiversity loss at this planetary scale, which would naturally mean that, you know, very large amounts of resources have to flow from north to south. We are, we are clearly, politically, not able to acknowledge and act upon that truth. And that is deeply frightening to me because it's going to double in population in the next 30 years. Its economy is going to quintuple. If it has to exist behind some incredible firewall where all of the extreme costs of uh, climate change and natural resource exploitation it receives no reward for that, then, then I think we're really potentially heading into a very sketchy sketchy future. You know? So let's dig in on that a little bit more. I think you're right. This is sort of, so just sort of framing things out a little bit. I've heard you say a number of different things, but to make them maybe more explicit, I think there's pretty deep historical precedent to link changing climate to war and political instability and economic instability, whether that's the long 10,000 years of desertification in the Middle East, leading to where we are now, deforestation, degradation of landscapes from overgrazing, et cetera, et cetera. There's sort of like a historical eco-materialist or something <laughs> explanation to be made for a lot of conflict uh, challenge. So there's that component, right? And then there's also just the component of that reality 
mixing with the current moment and just noting, I would say, I mean, although I really resonate with this, you know, sort of the global north, understanding its responsibility and flowing capital to the global south in order to both decrease the cost community of humans needs to bear on their environment and themselves in coming up into an economy of, of wealth and abundance, but also maybe out of a sense of fairness. And I'm just curious, where do you source your, do you have a sense this is comes from like a reparations perspective and a moral perspective, or is it purely a practical and utilitarian perspective or some third way of articulating that? And I'd love to hear your personal sort of where you source the imperative, like, hey, this is something that must be done. And also just your sense, which argument lands with who? You know, if you go talk to a, a banker, does explaining, translating this all into economic pragmatism work better than moralizing? Or do you need to use both? Um, Sorry for another complex, open-ended question. <laughs> it's really, it's a great, it's a great question. Though I always feel in our conversations that we are in a very grand hotel with a with an extremely long corridor, and there are so many wonderful doorways that we can go. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I mean, moralizing, no, that never works. Reparations, no, it's a non-starter. It always has been. It's a non-starter in the U.S. It's a it's certainly a non-starter. And I think it's very, uh, I mean, I'm a little bit conservative on this issue. And fortunately, I'm not on Twitter, so I won't have to bear the brunt of neo-Marxist abuse on this particular point. But I do think colonial, post-colonial, let's just park that whole argument. It's not the, don't get me wrong, I really have to articulate this point carefully. I'm not saying that colonialism was right. I'm saying it wasn't wholly bad. There were a lot of positives in it as well. Uh, and it was what it was. But many African countries, and I speak, you know, obviously as an Africanist, many African countries have been extraordinarily badly managed since, let's say, 1990 in terms of, okay, central banks maybe not so badly managed, but the amount of tax that they're supposed to raise is a fraction of what they're supposed to raise. The taxes that are raised, the majority of it is stolen. Who is it stolen by? It's stolen by this elite. You know, whole enterprises of business which are, you know, controlled by cartels in a very corrupt fashion. Crummy deals which are done with China. The idea of anyone... You know, and I won't name any specific African country here, but anyone who says we are suffering only because we were once colonized, I just don't buy that argument at all. It really is done. And I, I can I'm not the right person as a white, middle-aged, straight man to be making this argument, but I know many of my African friends would make the argument in a more elegant and sophisticated way than me. Uh, the numbers just don't stack up on that. So moralizing, colonial, post-colonial, should park all of that. And we just talk about humanitarian issues, empathy, compassion, um, justice. Like, wh why should a child in a small village in Africa suffer so much hunger, you know, not having the opportunity for a decent education or an opportunity for a job. I think is a, is a soft spot that many 
right-thinking people around the world can orientate themselves around that point, you know, regardless of their political or cultural position, that they can recognize that there's a question of common humanity. And then behind that is this separate question, which I've increasingly come around to, which is biological systems are failing. They really, really are failing. And, and the way... I mean, I don't need to tell you this, Greg. <laughs> this is your daily work, and it's why I love Regen and, and why I think we'll be working together for a long time. But one example, I could go on for hours about this, but I met with a friend here in Nairobi the other week. He was a scientist, and he was trying to store seed samples from rare East African grasses and preserve this bank of the genomes, and he had to put it in the National Collection in the National Museums of Kenya. But there was no money for the National Museum of Kenya to maintain the collection. So this scientist had to raise money in order to put these grasses, you know, the most basic building block of our, <laughs> our biosa, you know. And so he had to pay the National Museum of Kenya in order that he had the privilege of putting those genomes in there. And it's the same with insects, pollinating insects. And, and you build that from there. But we, we're, in a, we're in a very, 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 very difficult 30 to 50-year stretch now, which I think most of your listeners appreciate very clearly, where all of those 19th century men imperatives, the need to control... Uh, national destiny, and on the other hand, the industrial capitalists and the mercantile class, who, despite knowing that they shouldn't be investing in coal and oil, will see opportunities to invest in coal and oil and continue on that path, you know. And our biosphere just can't, can't handle that. The only way forward is to think in entirely novel directions which are compassionate, which satisfy verification, around which sensible financial markets can be built, regenerate communities and regenerate ecosystems rather than uh, deplete them. I'm so excited to build a bridge straight over into interspecies money. But before we go there, I want to double click on this concept of, I guess, sort of responsible markets. Specifically, I mean, first off, just to shout out to you, my enormous gratitude. I know I've expressed this privately, but sort of more publicly to all my listeners. Jonathan is who introduced me to Kim Stanley Robbins. And so thanks to Jonathan, I got to have a conversation with Stan, eternally grateful for that. It was sort of like a peak moment for me because I've always he's had such an influence. One of the things that I remember in my conversation with Stan is he basically said, markets are bad. That's sort of like a fundamental sort of precept that that he had that colors his worldview. And I personally have a more, I guess, it feels more gray to me. They feel neither good nor bad, but there's like context and setting and other things. But I'd love for you both, if you and Stan have gotten into it around just like the theory of markets 
maybe to share a little bit about how those conversations went or maybe not even referencing the conversations, but what you think, what is there space between your worldview and his worldview? Is that a creative space or attention? Yeah, I mean, um, responsible markets, I guess. Obviously, I've got this other life, uh, quite separate life as a novelist. And so my friendship with Stan is obviously kind of quite a literary friendship. And we we do have, um, we do write to each other write each other emails i'm just checking actually my email i wanted just to see this i had a question to him in my last email it was like this question of embodiment which we have to get to you know so i don't know if you remember um stan's novel aurora did you read that novel Yes, I did read Aurora. And just to give people a quick synopsis of that, Aurora is sentient ship launched from Earth to bring settlers to the nearest habitable star. And it takes them something like a thousand years. It's a journey. There's multiple different layers of that. One of the ecological and functional journey is just this closed loop sort of century ship or eon ship. Kind of the ecological systems start to break down because it's not big enough to maintain sort of a complex vibrant living system there's also a bunch of other really amazing things that that happen quite a compelling story yeah my my question for stan which i you know he sends me questions and i I send him questions it was uh around if you have a multi-generational you know stanford tourist style uh, space colony heading off I think it was to tell Seti covering the star system. They had like 20 or so biomes in the spaceship in which there were all other Earth species. They're kind of Noah's Ark, really. But my question to Stan was, if it was multi-generation, what would be the interspecies relationships between... Because in the novel, there is none. All the other species are kind of static. (laughs) It's just like you're in the San Diego Zoo. And my thinking was, well, you know, if you were heading off over many generations, maybe you would develop quite intimate relationships with other species. So I just wanted to, to nudge Stan in that way. But I know that... When we talk about interspecies money, because he's done thinking on this carbon coin, as you know, you know, I think we do agree on one thing, which is a public good. Like So uh, whether we talk about healing the biosphere or maintaining the biosphere, whatever language we use around that, or whether we're talking about preserving and improving the life quality of uh, non-human life forms, we are talking about a planetary public good. And in that sense, we do have to build a financial system which acknowledges that as a planetary public good. I've always been of the opinion that, you know, we really would love to get to a central bank for other species, you know. So there'd be like a a bank uh, which issues its own digital currency, has its own governance, but its representation and its fiscal responsibility is not to humans, but it's to other embodied life forms. I'm pretty open, to be honest, Greg, and I think we've discussed this before, I'm pretty open as to whether crypto, either one chain, more likely, as you were saying before, the industry standard, you know, across 
different uh, reserves. I think you could create a synthetic central bank when it might actually be, there are regulatory questions around data flow, taxation, the ability of people in poorer countries to, to cash out of the system. So it, it's possible that, that that central bank might actually be a physical you know, central bank uh, like the bank for uh, international settlements or, uh, or right so there's these two sort of paths there's this sort of decentral bank approach which region and Klima uh, and Eden Dow and others in some way are innovating around and then there's sort of the central bank approach which Delton Chan and the global climate reward and and Stan's work in ministry for the future and your interspecies money essay that you published in Brookings um, sort of are, are talking about and fundamentally I would just say those are two different approaches to institutional building we'll see which one and they may coexist they may complement I've long thought sort of makes it infinitely more likely that there's a sort of a brick and mortar institution Institution that's either founded or or adopts these ideas if sort of crypto pioneers sort of force their hand, <laughs> both by innovating and piloting and showing the pathway, but also by sort of creating a credible alternative. I'm kind of more of a both and person that I think that, that the two actually will complement each other in the end, most likely. No, I think you're exactly right. I, I think the if we look at the timing, central bank digital currencies, when they will start to hit in a big way will be around 2026, 2027. That's a pretty good runway for Regen and fellow travelers to come up with uh, governance systems and verification systems, which may or may not interface with uh, central bank digital currencies, but they, they will. It's just not going to come out in the wash. What I would like to see is at least the, the, the positive attributes of central banks are applied to an interspecies money protocol, right? So that, those positive attributes would be common ownership, transparency, stability over, over the long term, and, and obviously the fiat element that unless you're a true basket case economy, you know, you can always uh, get back what you what you put in. But I'm pretty open, to be honest, that if a collection of cryptos, perhaps, you know, working in concert uh, with create a synthetic central bank, which had the qualities of uh, uh, crypto in terms of the ability to, to program governance at a much higher degree, and obviously the decentralized element and of course not having enormous amounts of debt that could be the right way to go but clearly the first step is to for reserves which exist in crypto and I think you've made this point before Greg that this should be an industry standard 20 30 40 percent of your reserve is in natural capital assets and I think that's starting to happen, you know, with, with Maker, Maker DAO's Clean Money Initiative, with Cellos, Treasury, they're shooting for 40% backed by, you know, natural capital assets and putting money into figuring that out. You know, we're talking in the Cosmos ecosystem about the, the ecosystem stablecoin called Run, which is going to be launched off of Agoric, backing that significantly with natural capital assets. And... There's an amazing group called Earth Bank that's building on Regen Ledger right now, 
a stable coin system that's 100% backed by ecological assets. And actually, they're building that in a euro sandbox, in a eurozone central bank sandbox. So it would actually be meeting regulatory norms. Yeah. So, I mean, there's we also gave a grant to a group called Humanity Cash to be doing research into um, a version of, of this that's also regulated, sort of a regulated stablecoin approach that's partially backed by ecological. You know, I think if we, I think if we have our messaging right, um, there is this moment where we can make that a, into a, a sort of a crypto industry standard. And I, I really resonate, Jonathan, with that as sort of like a core short-term strategy for helping bootstrap innovation and engagement here. Yeah, I mean, there is a, there's a question which obviously you'd be much more qualified to answer than me, but the, the question is, to what extent can these different chains apply a similar logic? But I think your point, if I understand it correctly, is if I'm a young person and I'm going to utilize a cryptocurrency, I'm probably going to utilize one which is proven to be regenerative of nature, you know, and I'm much less likely to. So that might imply there would be a lot of liquidity coming out of the chains, which are more carbon intensive or which haven't bothered to build. Um, well, I think that's right. I mean, I think the crypto industry is creating a free market competition between money systems, for better or worse. That's a core part of what's happening. Whether you're Bitcoin or, you know, or your Cello or your US tea or or whoever i think it's game on now and the the co competition is to maximize utility and public goods and minimize mm. negative externalities and that's the competition and one really clear pathway that both can secure a currency um, because of hard real assets that are tangible measurable and exist in the real world um, and creating public goods uh, that are measurable and and building adoption, I really do believe is going to be the inclusion of these ecological assets into treasuries, uh, the treasury of, of a stablecoin system. And the mere fact that we are, you know, we're having this conversation in a relatively detailed, attentive way it is almost proof of your argument, right? <laughs> the fact that we are thinking about, you know, do we care about collective of trees or individual tree? What kinds of natural capital uh, assets do we want to put into our currency? Uh, this shows, I, I think, for sure, that the action is in, is in this space. I, I, but I am interested simply because, you know, even though crypto, you know, has a very high market cap, or at least it did until a few months ago, um, and obviously will do again at some point, it's still fractional compared to central banks. Yeah, so I think, so, I mean, there wasn't really that big of We may still have a market correction here. I mean, I would expect there to be a pretty big correction with everything going on in Ukraine. I would note, though, that, yeah, I mean, the correction really didn't ever happen. The <laughs> the one that people Bitcoin went from sixty thousand to thirty eight. Is it forty thousand now? Something like that. Even six months ago, it was only twenty thousand. I mean, it's just it's just volatility. It's just like chop, really, in the in the larger scheme of things. I think your point is really well taken, which is that I guess 
it's sub two trillion dollars the the total crypto market cap the crypto industry sub two trillion it's it's probably one point six billion or sorry trillion point six trillion or so if I remember correctly the World Economic Forum was estimating that kind of in order to internalize living carbon and biodiversity into the global economy, we're talking about something like one to two trillion dollars per annum. So what percentage of that one to two trillion dollars per annum will be handled by the crypto industry versus other approaches, whether those are incumbent markets and registry systems or central bank approaches or, or commercial bank approaches, who knows, or some hybrid of those, which I think is maybe the most likely is sort of anyone's guess, but I think that's kind of the order of magnitude of economic inclusion that's required, probably minimal. I suspect what you'll see, Greg, is I would think around the year 2024, 2025, that you will see, for example, plugins to the uh, European Central Bank's so digital euro. So digital euro starts to appear and the crypto will have developed governance systems um, and verification systems, which, you know, kind of like Ripple, you know, was the kind of high street banking, you know, uh, application. Uh, but so I, I kind of think that that space is really interesting, but it might be that crypto just takes the whole thing, takes the whole pie. But I, I would be skeptical about that from one side, which is here in Africa, we've got dozens of countries. They've all got their own central bank. They've all got their own currency. They'll make it very hard for poorer communities. So my vision is that these poorer communities can earn value from liquidity which is precisely channeled through other species. So if they observe another species, they can earn some micropayments. If they provide a service, they can earn the micropayment. But then the question is, if the micropayments are coming through Shallow or another, another chain, how in the end does that cash out in a way that is satisfactory to the government of that particular country. That concerns me a lot, that we need to come up with a solution that allows people who've got the cheapest Android phone to, to have a wallet that is usable to them and it's not. But doesn't that already happen? They're not using blockchain for this, but my understanding is there's already sort of like a mobile money system in Africa that is not governmental, yeah, which is like sort of the most common unit of account for transacting. It's essentially like cell phone, basically, right? There's no problem with moving the, uh, moving the value around or having the wallets. Uh, the technology itself is proven and also the willingness of even very poor communities to adopt digital-only means of payment and, and savings and insurance. That, that's proven. The question is, if I was, for example, governor of the Central Bank of Kenya, how do I allow... Well, I think that's a problem with Cello uniquely. Yeah. And I think it is a problem. The idea of private money... I guess Cello, USDC, I, I think it's, it's useful. It can pay. There's sort of like there's utility, but in order for, I mean, to answer your question, in order for 
something like Cello to be the backbone. And I'll get to why I don't think this is a problem for Regen specifically in a second. But in order for something like Cello to be the backbone for payments, there would need to be a massive liquidity stable swap system between the central bank issued currency and Cello itself so that people can move in and out seamlessly without, without disrupting the market. Not that. And in fact, the fees from that kind of liquidity, sort of like public utility of liquidity, could even cycle back into the system. There's some really cool designs for that kind of community-owned liquidity utility system. I think one of the things that we think a lot about at Region and in the larger Cosmos ecosystem is the foundational infrastructure, having interoperability between sovereign money systems. The tools should be cheap, easy, secure, and available for a particular nation state to spin up their own system. They can then engage with sovereign systems that represent potentially even the species themselves or communities. And that if you go for interoperability first, then you don't have to sort of do a hacky finance. You don't have to do a financial hack of, you know, necessarily like this crazy stable swap system. There could just be simple, clear interoperability from the get-go. Yeah, no, no, I, I take that point. But I think whatever approach you take, at some point in the large parts of the planet where most humans live, going to have to engage with governments in in a way that is attractive to them. Obviously, the, the great advantage of these DeFi systems is it's much harder for bad actors to sit on money flow because money flow is kind of fractal and and is distributed in, in atomic fashion you know with small small increments just going all the time for whatever qualified service that the is asked for and that that is really potentially transformative in countries where the rates of corruption are very very high but that's where i would stand a little bit on the central bank in the sense of got to have a, at some point you have to have that meaty argument where the public good is actually presented in a way that is accepted and written into law and into tax law and so on. Yeah, well, I mean, I couldn't agree really more fervently with that point that this actually needs to transcend market. Exactly. We're talking about legal norms here. <laughs> And we're talking about rights of nature, rights of species, as well as monetary representation, financial instruments. But there is totally this legal construct that's needed as well, which I tend to think as sort of a crypto native, maybe anarchist leaning millennial, that a lot of that stuff, you know, the, the tools for a new sort of like le legal and financial system is what we're building. And th that will inform what political bodies, whether they're nation states or city states or autonomous regions or species or watersheds, bioregions, protected areas, the, the way that consensus is generated around a set of legal norms, financial instruments, financial infrastructure is like, that's the whole, that's the irreconcilable complexity of what we're working on. It can't simply be collapsed into sort of like, in quotes, a cryptocurrency. It's sort of a transparent, secure, community-owned infrastructure for that whole, for that whole system. 
with that framing, I'm super excited about the work that you've been doing on interspecies money, both your writing around it, as well as this pilot of Dugong Dao. So I'd love it if, you know, if you wanted to start to dig into that, it's sort of been a long lead up to get here, but hopefully it's been really helpful for the, for listeners to sort of get a sense of where you're coming from and, you know, the depth of thought that you're putting into all of this. And so, so maybe you can take us on a little journey around um, Dugong Dao as a pilot of interspecies money. And then maybe we can, ideally, we can save a little bit of time to talk about this. Are we trying to represent the value of an individual uh, tree or individual uh, bison or fish? Or are we trying to represent the value of a system? When does what make sense? Yeah, I'll hand it back over to you. Yeah, I mean, just a, a couple of points um, on, on background on this. So when I left The Economist, I really wanted to get into research science and advanced technology and I wanted to do it in a really robust way so I went and became a, a fellow and a director at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology which is more like a Caltech than it is an MIT I mean it's really very heavy on mathematics and computer science robotics and those are the fields that I spent the last decade you know, just sitting with professors and research groups, really thinking about the very cutting edge of those uh, fields. And my group in Switzerland, we did some work with a group at MIT, uh, Sandy Pentland at MIT, just thinking through digital identity for very poor communities in Africa. Like if you're a really poor person, this is probably circa... 2014, I think, if you're really very poor and you just had a simple, you know, in those days, Nokia phone, what would be your digital identity? And of course, a lot of that work is really dated now and Facebook did what everyone hoped they wouldn't do um, and just sort of decided that they owned people's digital identity. But that got me thinking a lot about uh, this question of whether you can extend uh, digital identity across the species divide. I've always been deeply fascinated in other species. As a novelist, my first novel was called Giraffe, and it was about a herd of giraffes. And my second novel really centered around the question of uh, life forms, uh, non-human life forms in the deep ocean. So for whatever reason, my brain was always wired towards other species. And so I really started to think uh, about this question of digital twins of other species. And, and then I went and became a, a visiting professor in AI. And I was really focused on artificial intelligence and nature and the digital rights of non-human life on earth how, how are they represented how are they remembered you know what what is their agency and and all of these things kind of came together with my macroeconomic and macro political and security thinking which was brutally great you know here in africa and certainly in south asia to some extent in Latin America, if we don't come up with the system we were just describing, probably half of diverse non-human life forms on our planet will be gone forever. They won't be 
reconstitutes, they will disappear. I'm a 50-something guy. If I live another 30 years, that's still my lifetime, right? This is like existential stuff, right? It's just yeah. it's absolutely clear that uh, in these poorer communities where you have three, four, five thousand people, that's going to end up at 10, 11,000 people. 70, 80 percent of those people won't have jobs. If we don't build systems which bring them closer to other life forms, which they have to cohabit with and make them incentivize them to appreciate those life forms, to comprehend them, and maybe even to provide services to those life forms, that in many cases, the, those other life forms, they won't be able to hold hoof up or their, their paw up or whatever and make themselves known. And in many cases, when we're talking about, you know, forms of... Uh, smaller forms of life, so smaller animals or grasses or trees, these species are just disappearing without anyone acknowledging them whatsoever. And in that context, you know... Okay. I, my, Do you mind if I interrupt you for just a moment and ask yeah, a question? Please. Well, so I always have this little annoying voice in my head at this stage of my own thinking and listening to your thinking. I have my own answer too, but I want to hear your answer to this question of, but Jonathan, doesn't, aren't we just financializing nature and won't that degrade and banalize something that's sacred and turn it into numbers, turn something that shouldn't be numbers that we should just care about intrinsically into, like, won't financialization make this worse somehow? How do you answer that voice? I answer it a little bit lamely, to be honest, which is, uh, I would say, we need, uh, let's say, 100 million, $200 million equivalent scale. So that's our crypto reserves approach that we were talking about earlier. We need to test this out across multiple species in multiple ecosystems to see if it makes sense in, in the wild. We, we And we need to do it now for the reason I just suggested that we're looking at you know mass mass extinction events for many many species my view is that the urgency obviously allows us uh, at least the chance to to get to this two 200 million let's say that would be a reasonable ceiling to to apply different forms of artificial intelligence and game theoretic models really innovative DAO governance systems and of course tokenization incentives and so on i don't think any reasonable person and probably there are some unreasonable people out there uh, who, who are probably neo-marxist who would who would sort of object to this. I do feel... To clarify what this is, it, it is devoting 100 or $200 million, specifically creating a reserve for funding and incentivizing species, the conservation and stewardship of species uh, through the concept of interspecies money. Yeah, I think it's even more radical than that, Greg, because I think that the money... Is owned by the species themselves, right? I mean, that's the idea. The governance structure of the DAO, if it's successful, if we can successfully architect this, the governance structure of the DAO is applying very simple rules of what the other species would like to see. For example, uh, know me, know who I am, where I am, 
Don't Kill Me, and maybe a few other services uh, which are specific to a species in a given uh, ecosystem. That seems to me a real radical step on, on the kind of planetary equity uh, where we are constantly, and this is almost a riff on what we were talking about earlier in terms of rights are being accorded constantly outwards to more and more groups uh, who have previously not had a strong voice. In my vision, this is a way for other species to make themselves in the world. As you know from your work, right, there, there's a school of economic theory which holds that money is simply a form of human memory. And I find it very striking that because wild species have never held money, except obviously in the processed parts, they don't really exist in our memory structure in the way that they should. I take a kind of a radical, determined view that, yes, there is a significant risk that you just stated, and it is the risk that keeps me awake at night. And in the honest answer is we wouldn't know until we actually trial it in, in, in a significant scale. My belief is that it, it should have a chance of empowering other species uh, to making them, uh, you know, improving the science of, around them, improving uh, human, uh, non-human relationships, uh, even creating platforms for new uh, forms of interspecies culture where, where we are able to really meditate on uh, other species. And don't forget, this is all happening at the moment of emergent artificial intelligence. So many of the systems that we're talking about in terms of machine vision, acoustic signatures, you know, mapping the genome, all of these things are made affordable and possible by these advancing uh, forms of narrow artificial intelligence. I think there is a, my view about money is that money is, is really changing. One of the things that crypto has done is to dissolve the idea around this strict you know, fiat currency. And so when we talk about natural capital assets, we absolutely have to talk about other life forms that we cohabit the planet with. It just seems, it would seem to me the bigger imagination leap is not to do that, right? <laughs> it's to say, no, other species don't have any place in the systems that we're building and they, they simply are ambient others ethically i think that's a really difficult position to take you know when you know that and if we talk about dugongs just as a sesame street example you know so this is the first dow that we are building you know thanks also to regen for your generous grant but the dugong this is an animal it's a big animal right it's related to the elephant it's intelligent it's disappeared off most of its range or where it's existed for 30 to 35 million years in the last 30 years. And then when you look at the science, we've got eight to 10 scientists in the world who are full-time studying this species. No one's even seen a dugong uh, mate. We don't know how they mate. <laughs> it's like incredible. Intelligent, large beautiful animal which is disappeared 
you know, I mean, for example, in Africa, it was the entire east coast of Africa had dugongs. Now there's 70 animals left in Mozambique. No one noticed it. And you would think, if that can happen to dugongs, what about parasitic wasps? What about soil biota? But dugongs are interesting also from a game theoretic model because they, they have very simple needs. They, they're just sea cows that like to eat seagrass. And so if you leave them alone and let them eat seagrass, their numbers are probably going to recover in certain instances. You know. But I think they're a useful kind of poster child for, for this larger interspecies money movement, which, by the way, obviously will have to be self-organized. So the idea is that we prove it out, and then you, have, then you create these financial instrument liquidity, and then scientists, communities, conservation organizations, maybe even private sector companies, self-organize around that mechanism in a ways that are beneficial to, to thousands of different species. Well, now let's, let's go into this comment that I, I sort of threw out as one of the first things I wanted to talk about, which is where do we place, I think one of the core and most interesting elements to how you're thinking about this is centering it on individuals, like an individual tree or an individual dugong, it seems like that's really core to, to the, the theory or the experiment. Tell me more about why, maybe both from an economic and philosophical perspective, why that's the right place, in your opinion, to be focusing. Well, I, I think there's going to be a lot of variety there. And uh, I'm sure among your listeners, there are plenty of biologists, you know, quite rightly say an ecosystem services approach you know, protecting habitat and so on, is the, the right way forward in most instances. And I don't disagree with that. I don't pretend that interspecies money is going to be the primary regenerative tool for other species. What I think it's useful for is particular keystone species, in particular ecologies, which otherwise would be at risk of local extinction events. Obviously, for different phyla and in different ecosystems, there might be different approaches. For example, with the dugongs, we think that we will give an identity and a wallet only to a herd of animals. Dugongs live in a herd, and only a very tiny number of dugongs will break away from the herd and go off on their own. So there is this cohesive unit, rather like a flock of sheep, where it kind of moves around as a group. So it doesn't seem particularly important in that context of that species to give them an individual identity, to give an identity to the herd which shares common DNA in a particular location because they, they normally stick to, you know, a, a 20 square kilometer area of seagrass, sometimes a little bit more. So for that species, we're not really talking about individuals. But for example, with the great apes, to hold track of work, thinking through orangutans in particular, it would make sense that the individual orangutan, he or she, has their own distinct identity. So they, they do dial up their own digital twin. Obviously, the twin hold, hold, holds the wallet um, on behalf of the individual animal. And when we mention trees, I'm really interested in... Um, very long-lived trees, you know, the, 
one, one of the most alarming statistics I discovered in 2021 was that about half of the long-lived trees in Africa have disappeared in the last 10 years. So these are trees which have lived for, for many centuries, just gone. And that would seem to be a very simple, embodied target of interspecies money right there. You know, it's very, you know, compared to an animal moving around complexly in the ecosystem, you know, to have a, an 800-year-old tree and give it a digital identity, uh, let it ho- hold the wallet, pay the community for its continued survival, and maybe some of the species that live in the tree. That seems to be like a no-brainer. But clearly, um, you will have slightly different approaches for different for different species, and and obviously, we'll probably try in these pilot studies different approaches, uh, and scientists and uh, communities will will work through what what is going to be the most effective, you know. But I do think, just a final point on this embodiment, this is a more esoteric point. It's more of a standpoint. But because I spent a lot of time thinking about artificial intelligence, it's very clear to me that we have emergent, non-biological life form arising in the planet. And that that life form uh, will be heavily networked. You know, so... I don't want to get too, I'm not a complete Trekkie, but you remember in the Star Trek, the, the Borg, you know, it, yeah. it was very hard for the Borg to be an individual, you know, and, and this was a sort of Captain Picard's kind of trump card, if I remember rightly. It's been a long time. But, but I, I do see that spiritually, philosophically, ethically, in evolutionary terms, embodied life forms, Almost you could push it to the extreme in this conversation to even uh, Christian uh, theology, where I think like you could take a really punk interspecies approach to Christ and say, well, actually, if you were an all-knowing, you know, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipresent God, you, you were like heavily networked through the universe, then actually shutting yourself off from that into a corporeal form of one human body would be like a really radical action because everything will become mortal, become finite, become significant. And I think that that argument extends to, to other species. There's something about every species in the world is moving within their own sensory bubble and within their own biological timeline and there's something powerful that gifts to the universe a network system cannot i certainly don't think that the ecosystem service model really picks up on the value of uh, individual life forms as much as it should so that's where i think that interspecies money can be quite powerful i love that i think I mean, it's very interesting to me this sort of I'm thinking of just different indigenous traditions in which unique gift of any specific individual creature is sort of acknowledged and celebrated and and its relationship to the other gifts of other individuals. Yeah, there's something really poignant about about that. And I do think that ultimately it's the right place to have the conversation is maybe more on the esoteric, philosophical, ethical, moral 
landscape, if for no if for no other reason than to draw out different foundations and assumptions and first principles, so that then we can see what those assumptions like how those assumptions play out in a in a model that is sort of an ecosystem service approach at a pattern level for a system itself versus having a, a more individuated and maybe complex, therefore complex approach with interspecies money. I think it's really rich. It's really rich and interesting. Left feeling sort of excited and optimistic and with a little bit more depth of understanding myself around the role of interspecies money in this larger regenerative finance and planetary regeneration movement that we're a part of. Why is interspecies money unique and what's its role in reconnecting the human economy with the greater than human economy? I'm, I feel more clear. I still have so much, so many questions that I can't wait to explore kind of in real time, as the Dugong Dao pilot is being built, as these experimentations in building digital twins and automating the actions that those twins can take, you know, who they're paying and for what and when and under what circumstances, that kind of that building out of that, diving deeper into, you know, what are the roles of the human agents in helping govern and steward these DAOs, these interspecies DAOs, are all just enormously exciting and I think important questions. So it's really going to be, I think, a Dugong Dao starts to manifest. Yeah, thanks, Greg. I mean, uh, I, I think the final point, uh, which I, I don't think I made, it's such an obvious point. The richest biodiversity on the planet is proximate to the poorest communities on the planet. There is this possibility these very poor communities can improve their quality of life, um, uh, you know, materially and, and maybe even uh, in cultural terms as well by drawing closer to other species yeah. around them. I love that. I love that image of just the alignment of beauty and wealth in a way, that there's something intrinsic and powerful around these species. Their intrinsic value is enough for us to endow them with economic value and for those species to then be paying for sort of stewardship st services and thus flipping yeah. the script as well so that these people who have been at the edges of the an extractive economy are now centered in a new regenerative economy where their yeah. role in stewarding these species is really centered in in the way the economy this new economy is is created no, that's beautifully said, right? Yeah, it's definitely they're they're on the front lines of a regenerative economy as opposed to you know being on the front lines of of a really difficult, uh, impoverished, and often quite insecure previous economy. So I, I agree with you. I'm very uh, I'm very hopeful, uh, but only if we get the work done. <laughs> I think, you know, uh, miles to go, but so many of the building blocks are, are here and, and I think opportunities are here as well. And, you know, I, I do hope that, you know, because ultimately we are trying to center the social construction of value into ecological realities and connect it to the greater than human world here. And on some level, always comes down to the success of this big endeavor will be people choosing to put their attention to it. You know, the, the, the scarcest resource right now is human attention, really, in the midst of in the midst of all the tumult and all these crises. Yeah. 
what do we put our attention to? And people choosing to pay attention to this question specifically, if that happens, I have a lot of faith that who knows what the fruit will be born will be, but bear fruit it will. But I think that's, again, where an interspecies money approach is quite promising because, you know, you end up people either locally or on the planetary level, you know, end up having, you know, totemic species. You know, they will, they will gravitate towards different species and, and, and start to understand them a little bit more. And that will be, you know, a part of their culture and a part of their life, you know. I mean, I just have this dream of uh, in five years' time, banker in London is taking the tube home at the end of the day, and he or she checks in on their species, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah, real time. You know, I think we we're at the beginning of uh, an entirely new element of uh, human non-human. Uh, relations. I tweeted out a couple of weeks ago, financialized interbeing really feels like that's core for the yeah. interspecies money thesis manifesto. Yeah. Well, Greg, it's been wonderful to chat to you this time. I hope our recording survives. <laughs> it should be good. It looks good. I, I think we should have no problems other than maybe some occasional blips where my internet slowed down. But apologies to our listeners for any audio issues. But I think it was a great conversation, Jonathan. And um, thanks so much for taking the time to, to chat with us. God bless Ukraine. God bless Ukraine. Thank and, you. Um, uh, be well. Have a great evening there in Nairobi. Thanks, bud.